Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. That's where we'll be today. If you do not have a Bible, you're more than welcome to use one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. And if you need a Bible, you can keep that Bible and take it home with you. Um, just a couple additional things as, as we're getting started. Uh, Sue Bliss is not here today. Uh, she fell this morning and hit her head. Uh, so many of you know Sue, uh, one of our sweet ladies who is here. Uh, so she's at the ER. Andrew's actually with her and helping her. And uh, so pray for her. And you know, Sue, uh, these, are, these are tough things for her. Um, uh, she could use just calls of encouragement. And so if you're able to do that this week, I would encourage you. Um, and also, with Thanksgiving, I want to always remind you, these are great times to engage our neighbors. These are great times to engage our coworkers. Invite them over to our houses, have meals with them. There's a lot of people that don't have extended families and they'll be alone on these holidays. Invite them over. Bring them into the joy of your household. Let them see the love of Christ. And so really want to encourage you, great opportunities to reach out to neighbors um, and, and see them during these times. Uh, so as we said earlier, last week, uh, was Orphan Sunday, but that got moved around for us, so this week we're going to look at, at orphans particularly, um, and, and widows as that comes into our text. The title today is Pure and Undefiled Religion, and so uh, here's a couple just global numbers for you. There are 140 million orphans in this world. This does not take into account to anywhere between at least Two to eight plus million children living in institutions, nor does it include the numbers of children who are living on the streets, exploited for labor, victims of trafficking, or participating in armed conflict. So there's millions and millions of children who um, are orphans in this world. If we zoom in more just to the United States, as of 2015, there was 111,820 children in the U.S. awaiting adoption. In 2015, there was 53,549 children adopted, which means 58,271 children were not adopted. There are currently... Uh, 427,910 children in foster care. There's 21,000 children that will age out of foster care this year, meaning they've reached 18, they're no longer in foster care, um, which also means they most likely were never reunited with their family. They were never adopted. They never had parents that came alongside them. The average age of a child in foster care is seven and a half years old. Just think of it. So if you know my children, I have 10, 8, and 6. So Hannah is 8, Caleb is 6. So that's the age right there between 6 and 8. That's the age of of majority of the children who are in foster care. These are children who have often been separated uh, from their siblings, and many of them have no hope of ever being united with their biological family. They're plagued, often plagued, with shame and rejection. Many have never felt the warm embrace of parents or or anyone who truly loves them, accepts them, and wants them. Just think through that. So what do we do? That's that's the point. What, What do we do? This is what we're coming around here. 
What's the role of the church? What's the role of you? What's the role of me? What's the role of us together? That's what we're looking at. And, be, and to be clear, this is an area we need to grow in as a church. Like, we're not strong in this area. Like We have a few ways, and we'll talk about that later, how we are ministering just at this moment, but we need to grow. And so as we go through this message and we look at the text, I ask pray. Pray for yourself, pray for us as a church, that God would move us together and individually. Just how can we strategically come alongside orphans globally and locally and in our nation? What's exciting is that just this last Friday night, um, over at Westwood, uh, many, many of the churches in this area, we, we came along, uh, came together. This is the second time we've done this. We did it last year, now we did it this year. And, and we talked about the foster care system here in Thurston County. And we said, how can we solve this? Not meet it, not kind of meet it, not play a piece in it, but how do we solve the foster care problem in this area. And so last year, we've had many more people now go through the foster care, uh, getting licensed and, and everything. This year, we're hoping to see many more people go through that. My wife and I are wrestling through it, and this is the text that makes us wrestle the most. This is the text that we're in today in James chapter 1. This is why we adopted, why, why we felt God was leading us this way. I don't say that to say everyone has to adopt, but I do believe we all play a role in adoption and orphans and how do we love and support. And so what, I, what I'm really asking today, as we look at the text, pray. What do we do individually? What do we do together? It's not an option if we do, but it's, it's what do we do. And, and so, so be praying because I, I need help in this area. I, I need to know, and this last weekend was great. I stayed in. One of the breakout sessions was like, just what do you do as a church? Like easy things to do as a church. And my mind was blown on some of the simple things and how many things we could start doing literally like within a week. And, and so there are things that we are going to be doing, but, but I need your help on, on what can we do? How can we really play a role in, in, this, uh, in this community? But also just how do we be obedient to the scriptures? And so... Uh, we're going we're gonna to stand as we read James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. So if you have your Bibles, please join us. James chapter 1, we stand here when we read. The reason we do that, this book, the Bible, the 66 books, comes inspired by God. Written, ultimately, by the Spirit of God as He inspired men. So it comes with His full authority. So we stand as a way of recognizing the authority that comes with us. We stand as a way of honoring our God and Father. So that's what we do. Chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man who, intently, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away, and at once forgets what he was like but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religion is worthless religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus. We come as your children. We come as those who have been adopted because of your great gospel. We come as those who your grace has come to us, awakened us, made us alive, brought us into your light, given us your spirit, made us sons and daughters, that we would be heirs of everything you possess. We come as family members now, addressing you as as holy, as righteous, as God of all creation, and as our Father, and we ask for wisdom. We ask for your grace to be with us now as we come into this word, and, and we just say, change us. God, speak into our hearts today. May we listen to this. May we hear this word And may we be obedient. May we do it. May every one of us not, may every one of us walk out of this room changed, transformed because of the truth in your word today. Help us to fall more in love with you. May we better understand the gospel, who we are, and the role that now we have in this world. And God, may we see, may we see your love and care for the orphan and for the widow. And may we see that now your spirit dwells in us, that we love the very things that you love. The things you care about, we care about. And God, may we see our role today and how we can begin loving the orphan and widow also. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. Y'all may have a seat. Uh, So we're going to jump right in. We are to be doers of the word. Application, pretty simple. Read the Bible, do it. End of sermon. Let's pray, right? Like that's, that's literally, like if you're here for any period of time, you could boil down every application point to, to pray, read the Bible, and do it. Like that's ultimately what we say, but we, we try to make it a little more specific to, to help us all out, but... Verse 22, kind of hard to get around it. I love scriptures like this. There are some scriptures that are hard, right? Like Revelation, some of these things, what do they mean? Again, apocalyptic literature, or sometimes in the minor prophets. We're like, what do they mean? James 1, though, do the word. Don't just be a hearer deceiving yourself. This means we do not read the Bible, check the box, close the book, and move on. It's not what we do, but rather we, we open the word. It's meant to transform the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act. God's word is given to us to instruct us on how to live a godly life. Look at verse 25. I love verse 25. Look at the end of it. He will be blessed in his doing. The one who does the word will be blessed in what? In his doing. You get the connection? Where's the blessing? It's in the doing. So here's this amazing command. God says, I've given you word. Now now obey the word. And as you obey the word, I will bless you. I will bless you richly as you obey the very word that I've given you, is what God says. Now James has also something to say if we choose not to obey the word. To, To fail to obey the word is to be 
foolish. Look at verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So we'll just play this out. Women, I'm just, I'm not picking. I'm simply highlighting probably a fact. Probably a fact. Does that even, that, that works. Many of you today got up, blow-dried your hair, maybe curled your hair, put makeup on. It takes you a while, longer than it does me. It takes you a while, and, and oftentimes you're in front of the mirror doing these very things. Now imagine, you spend your precious time doing those things, however long that may be, we won't guess. Now imagine, right after you spend your time, curling, makeup, everything, you walk away and you go, what do I look like? Did I curl my hair? Did I put makeup on? I, I don't remember. What color is my lipstick? I don't remember. I mean, I just put it on, but I saw it in the mirror, but now I, I have no idea what I look like. I mean, isn't that just dumb sounding? Isn't that foolish sounding? Now, that's exactly what he's saying. Imagine you read the Bible, and it tells you all these things that you'll be blessed in your doing, and you walk away and you go, man, I, I don't remember what it says. So this is, why, this is what I do. Um, and and you, you copy this, or you come up with your own method. I, I read the Bible, and, and I have a journal, and, and after I get done reading, I, I write out. I just, I just write. You can write you know, a page, ten pages. You can write whatever you want. I, I just write what I saw. I, I describe the situation. I, I go through the context. I, I try to just brainstorm out everything that I see, and then I do three things. Head, heart, hands. I do the head. What do I learn? What, what truth stands out to me? I do, I do heart. Why is this truth good? How does it make my, my heart swell with joy because of what God has done for me? And then I do hands. What does it call me to do? That's my practice. It might seem simple, but it works for me. If you can come up with something much more complex and that works for you, great. I like head, heart, hands. Kind of covers everything for me. And it makes sure that when I read the Bible, I'm saying, okay, there's truth here. I want to see it. I know it's good, and I want to obey it. And James says we'll be blessed if we do that. And if we don't do that, we walk away and we don't obey it, then we're foolish. We're dumb. We're stupid. That's, that's what it is. That's what it means to deceive yourself. Secondly, to fail to live out the word is to have a worthless religion. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, in James and in throughout Scripture, the Bible clearly links what's in our heart to how we use our words, to our tongue. What's in our heart comes out our tongue. Our tongue is a window into our heart, so if we were to listen to how you speak, we should be able to understand what's in your heart. How we use words communicates who we love, what we love, what we desire. So James says, if the Bible does not affect your tongue, then what you believe, your faith, your religion is worthless. Now to take a side, slight side note here, um, there's a lot of times that we as Christians, we say things like, oh, I'm not religious, I don't like religion. You know what I'm saying? People say, oh, I don't like religion. We say, oh, me neither. I hate religion. Jesus isn't about religion. He's about a relationship. Have you ever been a part of that? I, I admit, I probably have done that. But it, 
But let's just think about Scripture. Um, and I just became kind of convicted on that. And we need to really watch the way we speak. What words does the Bible use? He's talking about religion, and religion here refers to our faith in Jesus. That's why we go into verse, chapter 2, verse 1. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So he's talking about religion. Your religion ought to change you. Your religion ought to change you. This is what pure and undefiled religion is. Then he says, and your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what we're talking about. He's using the word religion to talk about our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when someone comes up to us and says, I don't like religion, why don't we just say, well, what do you mean? And they say, oh, well, because, you know, it's either all legalistic or, or, or whatever they say. And, they say. and then we can come and say, you know what? I don't like that kind of religion either, and, and the Bible that I read doesn't like it either, and it calls it worthless. But let me tell you something that the Bible does talk about. It talks about a different kind of religion, a religion that's worth a great deal, that impacts and transforms the way we love one another. And it talks about how God has loved us. Let's, let's bring him in to true religion. Let's not stop using words of the Bible because people in the world use them wrongly. But let's, let's renew these definitions. Let's show them the biblical truth of God's word. So, sorry, side note. I encourage you, let's not say we don't like religion. Let's agree with people. We don't like the religions they're talking about, but there is one religion that we ought to talk about. There is one religion that's not worthless, but is pure and undefiled, and that's what we're here to look at today. After all, if you look at chapter 2, verse 14, what does, what does James say? He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, can that faith them? Can that save them? The answer is no, that can't save you. If you say you're religious but you don't obey the Bible, if you say you love Jesus but you don't do what he says, then no, you don't have faith in God. That's what James is literally saying in chapter 2, verse 14. If you think you're religious, if you think that you're a Christian but you do not obey the Scriptures, then you do not have faith in God and what you have is something worthless. Because according to the Bible, it transforms us. It changes us. It makes us more like Jesus. And in verses 26 through 27, James is going to give us three things that we are to do. Three things that the Bible is going to transform us that as we read it, it's going to call us to do. Now, I just want you to think, this is not a comprehensive list. But he has particularly chosen these three things. So of all the things he could have chosen, now there are probably some contextual reasons based upon the people he's writing to, why he chose these. But we should also say, these are three things that James is highlighting that says, this is what pure and undefiled religion looks like. This is what it looks like to truly love Jesus. So these three things we should, we should examine, we should hone in on. We should not ignore them. We should not think of them as suggestions. But James is saying, of all the things I could bring up to you, I want to bring these three. And these three things are, number one, we ought to bridle our tongue. Number two, we're to look at orphans and widows. And number three, we're to live a holy life, be unstained in the world. Now, I look forward, I greatly look forward to the day we preach through James. But we're not doing that today. So we're only going to look at the middle one, what it looks like to love orphans and widows, and how do we look after them. So, we are to visit orphans and widows. James says in verse 21 that a religion that takes, I'm sorry, verse 27, a religion 
that takes care of orphans and widows is pure and undefiled. Why? Why? You ever think about that? Why is that pure and undefiled? If our faith in Jesus leads us towards taking care of orphans and widows, why is that pure and undefiled? So let me give three reasons based upon the text. Number one, God chooses the poor to be rich in faith. God chooses the poor. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Orphans and widows are often the poorest people in society. They're the ones that get overlooked. They're the ones who get cast out. They're the ones who get ignored. They're the ones who get rejected. That's the whole point in chapter 2. As James goes into it, he said, you, you show partiality to the rich because they can pay you back. Because they can benefit you. Because they can help you in your social standings. The reason we ignore the poor, ignore the they can't move us up the social ladder. They can't move us up in the economic ladder. They cannot promote us in the world's eyes. But according to the Bible, what we see is that God chooses the poor. He loves them. He comes alongside specifically the orphans and widows. And if we look at Jesus' earthly ministry, we see that he pursues the outcast. He goes after the lame the lepers. Remember the story where Jesus reaches out and touches the leper? That's unheard of. In fact, often what happened is little Jewish boys would throw rocks at lepers, and that was socially acceptable. And Jesus goes and he touches them. And they thought it was contagious, so they're thinking, oh my goodness, what have you done? But Jesus knows no boundaries. He goes right up to them and loves them. He goes up to the blind, to the unclean. Remember the woman who was bleeding for 12 years. He doesn't ignore her. He goes to her and heals her. He goes to the poor. He goes to the widows. He goes to the orphan. And in fact, all throughout Scripture, this is what we see. God pursues the orphans and the widow. And so what I want to do is I just want to take us a quick run through Scripture. The Scriptures are going to be up on the screen. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them. They're also all addressed in your, uh, your worship guides there. So I encourage you to go back and look at them more in depth later. But here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. This is what God does. Now you'll notice, oftentimes, orphan, widow, sojourner, and or alien, uh, and the poor, they'll all be grouped together when God is, is um, speaking about uh, who he loves. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work of your hands. He says, you're a farmer. You don't need to go take everything. Leave stuff. If stuff falls out of your baskets, leave it. Guess what? It's going to be for the needy. That's how you're taking care of them. And I love Psalm 68, verse 5. God is the father of the fatherless. Protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. That is our God. Listen, that's his, that's his title. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows. This is our God. This is who we come to when we come in the scriptures. Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. 
Jeremiah 7, verses 6 and 7. This is interesting. The blessings of Israel is based upon who they love. Based upon loving the sojourner, loving the orphan, loving the widow, and of course, not worshiping idols. If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow... or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. You hear what he's saying? If you abuse the orphan, the widow, I will destroy you, is what God is saying here. But if you love them, you can stay in this land. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. You can see these all throughout Scripture. God loves the orphan. He loves the widow. He looks after them. He calls his people to look after them. Now, this brings up a question. Does God love the poor more than the rich? I mean, obviously, throughout Scripture, he loves the poor. He calls us to look out for them. Is God a God of partiality? No. So we know that's not true. What we know is that God chooses the poor as a means of showing the world how we come to him. That's what we understand as we look at why he loves the orphan, why he loves the uh, the widow, why he looks after the alien sojourner. He's showing how we come to him. He's showing how he loves us. Listen, we don't come to God with resumes saying this is why I'm acceptable. We don't come with bank accounts. We don't come with our hands full of our riches and our accomplishments. That's not how we enter into salvation. The only way any of us are saved is coming through poverty. Being Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit that doesn't mean economically poor it means we know that we have no other hope than jesus christ the only way we have salvation is through the means of jesus christ we come knowing we have nothing to offer jesus jesus isn't coming to us and saying man i'm so glad i have timberline on my side now i'm better now he looks better that's not we don't make him look better Do you know that? He is holy and he's righteous and he's perfect in everything that he does. We do not improve on the holiness of our God. The fact that he loves us and saves us is solely by his grace. We add nothing to his worth. We have no hope of ever paying him back. Faith in Jesus means we come with empty hands. That's how we come to Jesus. And we see That when we come to Jesus, we know his arms will be open. When we come poor, when we come with our arms saying, God, we have no hope. You are our hope. We know that he is the father to the fatherless, and he will bring us into his family. And, you know, one of the neatest stories in the Bible about this is really the book of Ruth. I encourage you, go read the book of Ruth. Like, it will bless you so much, especially just in this Thanksgiving time. But I want you to think about it. The book is about how God loves the poor, how he loves the widow, how he loves the social outcast. Now, just so you know, the book of Ruth, it's only like four chapters. It's in the beginning of the Bible. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Well, three people, no? So it's Ruth. There you go. It's also in your table of contents. The book of Ruth begins 
with a husband and a wife named Naomi. They have two sons. They live in Bethlehem, and there's a great famine. They're going to leave Bethlehem in great desperation and possibly lack of faith. And they're going to go to a place called Moab. Now, the Moabites are detestable people. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, we read, no Moabite will ever enter the assembly of the Lord up to the 10th generation, meaning Moabites are despised people. And yet, this is who Naomi and her family, they they run there rather than trusting in God. And we get it, there's desperation here. Now, soon after Naomi enters, and her family enters Moab, the, the husband's going to die, her two sons will marry women, Moabite women, and then the, no, those sons will die. So now we have Naomi. She's got two daughters of Moabites. And she says, okay, I'm going to go back to my own land. She doesn't belong there. So she's going to go back to her own land. And one of the women, one of her daughters is going to stay. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, is going to join her and go back with her to uh, the land of Judah. So now picture this. We have a widow who ran to Moab, returning with a Moabite widow. We're about as low as we can get on the social class. They have no husband. They have no sons. They have no one to take care of them. They're going to die. They're going back to Judah to die. They have no hope. You have to see this. And, and, and the author of the book doesn't want us to miss this. In fact, throughout the book, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, or just the Moabite. Sometimes we don't even need to use her name. We'll just call her the unclean person. We'll call her the unwanted person. We'll just simply call her the social outcast. We'll call her the one who doesn't belong. That's what it means when we keep saying the Moabite, the Moabite, the Moabite, the Moabite. That's how the book of Ruth addresses Ruth. But she comes back with Naomi having no hope. And then what we begin to see is God's grace unfold. There's a man named Boaz who becomes this redeemer and he marries Ruth. He gives them hope. He's going, he's their savior, literally. He saves them, brings her into his family, and they have a child. And this is the last verse of Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, the child's name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, if you're not familiar with the biblical story, David is the great, 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 I think that's close to 14, great, great, or farther, grandfather of Jesus. So what we have here is God takes a Moabite widow, adopts her into his family, and brings her into the very line that will produce Jesus Christ being born into this world who will then save the entire world and all who believe in him. Do you see? This isn't a rags to riches story. This is a God's grace story. I don't know how it highlights. (coughs) We have nothing. This is you and me. We are Ruth. We are the unclean. We are the unwanted. We are the one. When it comes to the social scale of being accepted to God, we have no hope. 
But God becomes our Redeemer through Jesus Christ. Not so we can pay Him back. Not so that we make Him look good. But simply out of grace. And He doesn't just bring us. He doesn't just save us. But He adopts us into His family. Amen indeed. And so that takes us to the next point. God adopts the poor into His family. Why does He love the poor? Because it shows us how we come to Him. And He adopts us. Chapter 1 verse 27. Look at how James talks about God. What does he say? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father. Why does he call him Father? Is, is James just throwing out titles? God the Father. I could call him God the Holy One. God the Creator. Why God the Father? Remember, this is inspired. The Holy Spirit is working in James. So James is writing in his own will, but exactly what the Spirit wants Think about this. In a verse that says we're to look after orphans and widows, James not so subtly reminds us that because of the gospel, we have been adopted into God's family. That's why he uses the word father. He's reminding us. Look after orphans and widows. After all, isn't that what our father has done with us? Listen, the point of the gospel is not justification. It's not justification. Now, justification is the fact that we are declared righteous, and I do not say that the point of the gospel is not justification. In no way does that belittle justification. The fact that we are declared righteous and made so that we um, are acceptable to God is an amazing point of the gospel, but that's not the end. The end of the gospel is not so that God saves us, and now you're holy, and now you're righteous, and now you just do what you want, and you just live in this world, and God's over here, and you're over there. But what's the point? God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross that he would take your sins and my sins, pay the penalty of them. He gives us his righteousness. Now we're made righteous so that he would adopt us into his family and we would be called sons and daughters given every riches and blessing that the son has, we now have also. You see that justification is a means to the end. It's not the end, and that doesn't belittle justification. That places it in the category that it should be. But it points us. It's the process in which God then adopts us as his children. Because before we come to Jesus, the Bible says that we are spiritually bankrupt. We are poor. We are needy. We are born helpless. We are spiritual outcasts. Now you might be thinking as I read that, I don't feel spiritually bankrupt. I don't feel like I'm needy. I don't feel like I'm helpless. I don't feel like those things. In fact, I can do a lot of things. I feel very capable. This is where we need to let the truth of Scripture inform the way we think. Because God's Word says, especially in Romans 5, we are enemies of God. That we are born rebellious to God. That we are born not loving God. And therefore, we're under his judgment. All we deserve is wrath from God. But the gospel declares that because of Jesus dying on the cross and saving us, he brings us into his family so that we'd be adopted. The gospel is about God reaching into the depths of the darkness of this world so that by grace we'd be saved and adopted and brought into his family forever. That's the gospel. So this is why when we talk about <clears throat> loving orphans and widows, this is one of the clearest pictures 
of the gospel that we can give to this world. Because if you're a Christian, your story is one of adoption, that God has adopted you into his family. So when we love orphans and widows, what are we communicating? We're communicating really the love that God has for those who come to him. This is why taking care of orphans and widows, this is not a social justice issue for us. That misses the point. This is a gospel issue for us. We're not trying to make a better world. You know that, right? Like you're kind of like, do I agree at that point? No, we're not trying to make a better world. Like what's going to happen to this world? Second Peter chapter 3, it's going to be burned up, rolled up, tossed out. And what's there going to be in place of it? A new world. We're not going to make this world better in the sense that if we just adopt a lot of orphans and widows, eventually everyone's going to love Jesus. No. There is a set time and one day Jesus will return and all who have not believed in him will suffer under the judgment. But we have the privilege and blessed opportunity of showing the love of God that more people will come to know him. And one of the ways we do that is by loving orphans and widows because we're not about making this world better. We're about pointing people to a new world. Because in the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, there will be no orphan. There will be no widow. Now, I just want you to think about that. You're talking to an orphan. You're talking to a kid in foster care. You're talking to a widow who feels rejected. You can come to her with the hope of the gospel, telling her exactly what Jesus has done, and you can say, there's a day coming when there will be no shame again. Where there will be no rejection. Now think about that. Think about how that sounds to someone who only knows shame. Who only knows rejection. Who has never felt the warm embrace of a father or a mother. There is a day coming when Christ returns in the new heavens and new earth that there will be one family. And it will be a perfectly functioning family. And God will be the head of it. And every person will be loved perfectly through Jesus Christ. And there will never, ever, ever, ever be shame, be rejection. But we will all experience the extravagant love and grace of God forever. Think about what happens when that message goes out in this world. And you know how we set the stage for it? Loving orphans and widows. That's how we do it. Number three, God is glorified when we love as he loves. Look at chapter two, verse seven. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable? We're talking about the rich here. Not that it's wrong to be rich, but he's characterizing the rich as those who are focused on themselves, those who are looking at more of their own personal and social um, advancement rather than loving on other people. And so he says, these people, are they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So when we show partiality to the rich, we are blaspheming the honorable name of God. And so then the reverse is, when we honor the poor, when we love those who have no means of paying us back, we're giving great honor to God who has called us. And because God has given us his spirit working in us, His desires are our desires, meaning his glory is what we desire. Because his glory is the very reason in which he has sent us, that we would know his glory, that we'd participate in his glory, that we would forever be a part of his family, worshiping him in great joy. 
So as we do this, he is greatly glorified, which thus shows his love more and more in this world. But I want to go back to verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows. What does it mean to visit? Like swing by DHS later, drop off some donuts, say good luck? Like that's visiting, right? You know, a foster family swing by, hey, good job, we're proud of you, and take off? Is that, is that visiting? Because that's like what I do when I visit someone. I go, how you doing? It's really good to meet you, taught, and I leave. Is that what James is talking about? I'm going to give you a definition of visit, and then we're going to look at the scriptural proof of that. The word visit, it means to lovingly and intentionally direct our resources for the good of others. That's what visit means. <clears throat> it means we're going to lovingly and intentionally direct our resources for the good of others. Now we're going to go through scripture, and we're going to go through a lot. It's all in your bulletin, and it's on the screen. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So this visiting is a way in which God is going to save his people. You get it? This is where the visit is. He's, this visit is not God's going to swing by, check on you, and take off. This visiting is the means in which he's going to save them and bring them back to the land. Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. Go read Exodus chapter 4 through 10, 4 through 12. You'll see all about the 10 plagues and how God saves Israel. So when he visits them in their affliction, this is for the purpose of directing his resources, his grace, in saving them. Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? That's the word visit. So the word visit is that God cares for us. Same word. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. This is Zechariah's song. After hearing that his, John the Baptist has been born and that uh, he is going to be used by God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's the whole point. The visiting is tied to redemption. Acts chapter 15, verses 13 through 14. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. The word visit is tied again to the redemption and saving. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. They're not going to just say hi, have a sleepover. They're going to strengthen the churches. So James is not calling us simply to be aware of the needs around us. He's not calling for us to simply know where the orphanages are or who the foster families are. He's not calling us to know lots of statistics. What's he doing? I'm calling you to visit, to lovingly and intentionally direct our resources for the good of orphans and widows. He's showing this is how you live out your faith. You visit them. You take care of them. You give what you have, what you have been blessed, to them for their benefit. Remember, this is, we're called to be doers of the word. So this is what it looks like to live out. Go back to chapter 2, verse 14. 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? We've already said no. That's ridiculous. That's a worthless faith. You cannot love Jesus and disobey his word. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed by the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So if we say, man, we're just going to be made aware of all the foster care, all the foster kids and all the orphans and all the widows, and we're just going to say, man, good luck. Can that faith save you? That's worthless. Faith and works are always tied and connected. We're saved by faith, but that faith always produces works. That's James' point. They're inseparable. Real faith in God acknowledges how God has lavished his grace and love upon us, so we would then lavish grace and love upon others. you, you got to know this, and I know you do. You have been saved, we have been saved, so that we would be instruments in the hands of God for the purpose of showing his love and grace in this world. That's why we're saved. That's why we still live on this world. You ever ask that question? Why isn't God just like... Beam us up to heaven once we're saved, right? Like, wouldn't that be cool? Like, I believe in Jesus, and then you like watch that Star Trek thing, and like, and like you're gone. Like, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, if that was the only point. But God's point is that His glory would be made known, His love would be made known, His grace would be made known. How is it made known? By the Spirit of His Son Jesus now living in us, so that we live like Jesus. So that now all of a sudden this world is filled with his church, with those who love him, who are loving other people as he loves us, so that they would also see his love and believe in Jesus Christ, become adopted into his family, and also have the hope of spending eternity with God. So I want to I just, what does this look like for us? It's, so I'm just going to give out some things, and this is certainly not comprehensive, but what does it look like? Number one, adoption. Adopt. It's literally because of this verse, I knew that I would adopt. And Steph knew she would adopt, and so we decided, well, we're going to do domestic or international. We said, where's the bigger need? They said, there's far greater need international. So we said, okay, we'll go international. We looked at different countries. We prayed about it. God directed us to Thailand and has blessed us with Caleb. Adopt. That's one way. Um, Foster care. And when we talk about foster care, it doesn't mean you have to be a foster parent. You, you, can, you can support foster parents. In fact, that was one thing I learned a whole lot yesterday or Friday. There's all the ways that we can come alongside existing foster parents. How do we love them? How can we help them so that they can better love their kids? Or, or how can we help, help with their kids, help with the kids that they're raising for their benefit and to give the foster parents a break and, and to come alongside them? There's many avenues in there. So when I say adopt or foster care, you don't have to say well, I don't know if I can adopt, or I feel like I'm too old to now adopt. Um, there's many ways that we can help. There's many, many ways that we can help. But I would also challenge you on anyone that says they're too old. One of the heroes of my faith is, is John Piper. And a, as he progressed much later in life, he did not say, wow, I'm now going to be an empty nester, and this is great, now I can do the things that I want. But rather, they then adopted Talitha into their life. And they raised her 
They didn't look at retirement and getting older as a time to cruise control. They said, no, we're now going to operate differently, but we still feel God is calling us in certain ways. And so they still adopted. So I just say that not to mean that y'all have to adopt, but let's not limit God by saying, well, I'm not sure if I make enough money or if I'm too old. Let's just, let's just pray and let God do with us as he wants. And he wants us to all adopt or some of us to adopt, but we shall be supporting adoptions. We shall be supporting foster families. In fact, when Steph and I were raising money, I have to say, we did not have to use much of our money when it came to the adoption process. God blessed us extravagantly through the church. Extravagantly. And even those outside the church, he brought in a great deal of finances so that we could pursue our adoption. Which brings us to money. Let's use our money. I know some of us are on fixed incomes, and some of those are very low incomes, but let me also remind you, we are extremely rich compared to this world. To the vast majority in this world, we make far more than they will ever make. So again, let's not limit God by saying, well, I only make this much. Let's just pray, God, here's my money. What do you want? Where do you want it to go? How can I use it? Let's pray. We spent a lot of time, I feel like, in the last few weeks talking about prayer. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is not the least we can do. Prayer is where we start every time. Because this is a powerful, powerful means. So let's pray. Let's pray for you. Let's pray for me. Let's pray for us as a church. God, move us. How, how can we help? How, how, and remember, our prayer is not just how do I help kids? How do I help widows? It's how do we advance the gospel through loving orphans and widows? How do we do the very thing that you're calling us to do? How do we have the heart that you have, God? And how do we live the way you've called us to live? And so let's, let's pray. CareNet. CareNet's an amazing way to come alongside. This is one of those things that we are a part of. Now, now CareNet is specifically coming alongside women, oftentimes single women, as they contemplate abortion. And CareNet comes and, and tries to show the value of the gospel, the value of life, and of having the child. So this is a great ministry in which oftentimes we're coming alongside the orphan and the widow at the same time. And that orphan is still in the womb. But what is an orphan? You ever think about that? What's an orphan? Isn't it oftentimes someone who has been rejected? Someone who doesn't have a home? Someone who's not wanted? What's abortion? Oftentimes it's those people. Or it's, it's the ones who are unwanted. They're being rejected. So coming alongside CareNet is an amazing way we come alongside women, we come alongside uh, the orphan, that we can give life there, that we can speak the love of the gospel to. So that, that is a powerful ministry. International Messengers, the Foxes were here not too long, and so I bring them up. They, um, they support an orphanage over in Romania. They support a, a widow's, a home made for widows who have been abused. And that is a ministry that we can support more financially and or also. I think we said and or all. Yeah, I think that covers it all. Or go. Or we go there. Or there's other places that we can go in the world. Now you might be thinking, okay, those are good. You're still wrestling. And you're thinking, well, what about this? Well, start a ministry. Don't be limited by my mere suggestions. Don't be limited by the mere things that I can think of or a few of us can think of. If there is something that presses on your heart, come and let us know, and we will see how can we rally behind you and that we want to help support that. So with that, I, I say, help us lead. 
This isn't, church isn't about me doing the things I want to do. It's not about it's getting just a couple of elders and saying, okay, now everyone just does what the elders want. It's about us saying, here's God's word, and, and let's, let's follow that together. So together, how are we going to go forth? If God places something on your heart, that's the Spirit of God. And as the church, we want to come alongside that. We want to fan that flame. We want to see it grow into whatever that could be. I love Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. We actually did not preach that verse going through Galatians. My hope was to go back to it. Um, but here's the little side note on it. Galatians is a book all about the gospel. It's all about Paul defending the gospel, explaining that it's a justification by faith. And in the midst of it, of him, um, of him showing how he's, uh, he is an apostle and his apostleship is affirmed by the other apostles and that the gospel that they have is the one true gospel. Then he says in Galatians 2.10 2, that this is what Peter and John and James, they say to, they say to Paul and Barnabas, only remember the poor. And he says the very thing I was eager to do. And so in this, in this defense of the gospel, we have the, and make sure the poor are taken care of. So, so here's the thing. When we look at church all across the globe, there's going to be things that look differently. Many churches do not gather like this. You know that, right? If we go to South Korea or if we go to North Korea, churches are not like this. They're underground, they're house churches, they're very secretive also in other parts of the world. We are very lucky to be in the United States in which we get to gather like this. But other parts of the world, I say that the way church looks will often be different. The message is the same, but contextually how we do things will sometimes look different. But you want to know what never changes? The command to look after the poor the orphans, and the widows. And so whether Paul is going to the Gentiles or Peter and James, they're going to the Jews, they're all taking care of the orphans and widows. This is not an American thing. This is not a Middle Eastern thing. This is not a South American thing. This is a church thing. It's a gospel thing. It's a God thing. He calls us to look after the orphans and widows. So, so remember that. This is not Timberline. This is the gospel. We're trying to say, how is God leading us? And this is to be the heart of every church. I want to close. I heard this illustration not too long ago. I think it was a podcast. Maybe one of you told it to me. I honestly cannot remember where I heard it. But I really enjoyed it. And it seemed quite timely. There was a little boy. He's walking along the beach. He's picking up starfish. And, and he's putting them back in the ocean. Have you heard this one? Well, I'm going to say it anyway. That was rhetorical. I don't care if you've heard it. The tide has gone back, and there's just hundreds. Maybe there's thousands. I don't remember. It's just littered the beach with starfish, right? And so he's picking them up and throwing them back in. And a man watches him, does this, and he, he walks up to him and says, what are you doing? So the boy says, well, I'm throwing the starfish back in, back in the ocean. And, and the man says, there's so many. Like, you you can't save them all. You have no hope. And he looks and he says, I can save this one. He throws it back in. We as Timberland, we're not going to solve even the, uh, the foster problem here in Thurston County. We're not going to do that alone. We're certainly not going to solve the problem globally. 
But we have a God that does. And we're just playing our part. And so I just, I just say that as we close. Let's just be faithful how God calls us. I don't know exactly what that looks like. We know he's calling us because it's in the Bible. We know he's calling us because it's the shape of the gospel. The gospel is shaped along the lines of loving orphans and widows. So we know that's going to be. I don't, I don't know how. We need to work together. And So I ask you, pray. Let's wrestle with this together. Talk to me. Talk to Rich. Talk to Chris. Let's just talk and discuss, but let's not leave it at talk. Because we're not hearers of the word only, are we? We're doers of the word. So let's make sure we, we, we come forth and obedient. Not to pay back God. Not to earn something. But we do this out of the pure thankfulness of our heart, the joy of our heart, that we also are all orphans adopting the family of God. And so, as we close, I want to invite, for one, the men can go ahead and come forward, and we're going to pass out the elements. And I want to encourage you, you, you can take these elements at any moment as they're passed out. So, if you, we'll take them all together at the end if you've not done it. But as we hold these elements, the bread, which represents the body of Jesus, the juice, which represents the fact that he died, it represents his blood, Let's do this with great thanksgiving. And this is the season, right? Let's do it with great thanksgiving, particularly focusing on our adoption. Particularly focus on the fact that if you're here and you're a believer,